The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I'm speaking with Karis Jagger and Fabian Tobek, executive producers of the Netflix series High on the Hog, the second season of which will be released on the platform on November 22nd. The subtitle of the series is How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. And much like the strong first season, the second does explore the impact of Black cuisine on American culture, economics, politics, and much more. I think that this season, though, is even more chock full of ideas and more profoundly forefronts activism. At the top of the interview, I give a bit of a fuller introduction along these lines, so I won't belabor that here. If you like this conversation, please do follow us on X and Instagram at TopDocsPod. Now, my conversation with Karis Jagger and Fabian Tobek about the second season of High and the Hog. Karis and Fabienne, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for having us. Yeah, super excited. Thank you. So we're here to talk about the second season of High on the Hog, which is based on the book by culinary historian and anthropologist, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, and hosted by trained sommelier and noted food writer, Stephen Satterfield. Compared to other shows that look at cuisine, obviously, I said the structure is very historical. Season one focuses on the time from initial enslavement of Africans in North America to the period that we'll call advisedly emancipation at the end of the American Civil War. This season focuses on a different historical period, really, from the start of the Great Migration, more on that in a moment, about 1910, through the Harlem Renaissance, civil rights movement up until today. It also centers, I think, more on the urban experience, which sort of makes sense, right? Great Migration, industrialization in America. And you really show some of the cities that are key to the Black experience, New Orleans, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, and Los Angeles, three of which I've lived in. And third, it also, I think, more clearly and profoundly forefronts issues around activism. Not that they weren't there in the first season, but I think it really brings those forward, cultural, political, and economic. So I want to talk to all those <laughs> again, <laughs> across the schedule. All right. So let's start right in the beginning. The first episode of season two, which is directed by Camilla Forbes, who also directed one of my favorite episodes of the 1619 Project, the music episode. She's great. She's terrific at telling a story in an, you know 45 minutes and using rest and motion. So let's talk about episode one. It opens in New Orleans and we start talking about Creole cuisines and we get a little bit of history. There's French and Spanish colonialization and French again. And that these foodstuffs and techniques came together with African-American and, yes, even African influences. One of the things for this series for me, I think, is my, I think my understanding of Black food was probably a little stuck before this series and soul food, important part, not you know, denying that. And there are continuities and shared ingredients, but I really found it interesting the way you explored these other cuisines, like Creole cuisine, like uh, Jamaican cuisine, that may have some continuities but are different. I think what we set out to do is that like black cuisine, and I think that it's not uncommon. People think of like, it's very monolithic. It's soul food. It's this one thing. Once we left Africa, all these other influences came into being. 
I think what we really tried to explore is that that the black cuisine is not monolithic. It is made up of all these people coming from all these different countries, from Jamaica, from Africa, and also the French influence. Because in season one, we started in pre-colonial Africa, and there's like African, but then we have the French that came in, and we have all these other colonial influences that affected it. I think when we start to look at the greater scope of like what Black cuisine is, it kind of takes on a different flavor, for lack of a better word, and also broadens our understanding of the cuisine. Kirsten, do you have anything to add? I think also it's very important for us to keep showing elevated food, which I think going back to your initial question is like, can we get out of the conversation that it's this one thing? Highlighting people that are doing like beautiful elevated food today. Which you showed also in the first season as well in Africa. I thought it was great. To follow up on this just a little bit, Stephen speaks with a chef who's originally from Senegal, Serenier and Baye, about French techniques. And immediately you start challenging my kind of assumptions. You know, he says, yeah, okay, they're French techniques, but the French were colonizers. What did they learn from the colonies? And he goes on to say that he does not believe that gumbo is chiefly inspired by boulebets, but more so the ingredients of African and African-American cuisine, rice, okra, black-eyed peas. It's the first time I've heard these suggestions. I was already immediately like, whoa, really mind-blowing stuff. I think if there was a documentary that did like French cuisine and like the origins of that conversation would actually come into play. And now we're hearing it coming here. You know, all these food origins get kind of dissected. And I think that, again, not any cuisine is monolithic. They were the colonizers and they were bringing from Africa back to France. And who's documenting those things? That's maybe... Another series. Fascinating <laughs> <laughs> <I said> series. <laughs> but I think it's like if we look at cuisine, there's so many different influences. Our goal is to, again, take people, take Black people out of just, they're just doing this, but they do all these other things and have all these other influences and celebrations around that. You know, there's just not one type of influence that is coming into play. You have another revision early on, which is the legacy of sharecropping. And this, like other points that we're going to discuss, is going to be a little tricky. So please help me navigate through this one. Now, I'd always been taught this was a highly exploitative system, one where people recently emancipated, again, I caveat that term, found themselves cultivating white landowners' land, taking some small portion of the profits, paying exorbitant rates for equipment, running up a nasty line of credit at the store, the owner's store maybe never breaking even, maybe always being in debt. But Stephen interviews Alvin Shields, who doesn't dispute that completely, but he does say that that's not quite the whole story, that there was some pride that before mechanization came into play, some pride, some sense of ownership here that really, it surprised me again. I mean, I think that was such a beautiful scene because it's so intergenerational. And I think that he has a different opinion being closer to it. And I just love that he, in conversation with Stephen, that they could sort of grapple with the evolution of that, which for Elvin Shields was coming from a different place, I think, than how Stephen perceived it. But I think the beauty of Pie on the Hog is that we're digging into differences of opinion and keeping them in a safe space and honoring both sides of the conversation. I, I really appreciate that. And after our time in New Orleans, we almost literally head north on the train to Chicago and Stephen tells us that his grandfather, like many Black men at the time, became Pullman Porters. It's a pretty good paying job. But we hear from Mr. Benjamin Gaines Sr., 
who's 98 years old when you interview him, that even here you could face racism, small indignities, but also even in one case, assault. And you make a case for resistance here, I think it's important. I think it's going to help us see things like civil rights in a broader scope later. What was so great about the Pullman Porters is that it really did usher in a whole middle class. It was upward mobility. As a result of that, they unionized. It was integral to the start of homeownership and cars and mobility. However, it also had this like very dark side as well. You know, everyone was called by the same name. There was an indignity to that. If you look at some of the Pullman historic elements, they said that it made it sort of like everyone was the same and really not looking the dark side of like not being referred to as your own name, as their own entity. We really also feel really lucky that we were able to have Benjamin as part of the documentary. He subsequently has passed away and probably has never had an opportunity to speak and talk about his experience. Also, what was so wonderful is that Stephen's father, a grand great-grandfather was a Pullman porter, and it gave him an opportunity to also see that lineage because I think we don't get really an opportunity. We don't really hear from our elder, like our ancient elders, like the hardships that they had to endure, even in a situation where there was some sort of upward mobility. I feel also that like we've moved so far away from train travel that mm-hmm. it's interesting to look back at it because it was so important to that period and really changed the country in terms of so many things. Like seeing that actual train journey from South to North was very much like getting to see like how people were leaving the South and heading North, but in a way that we really don't do anymore. Yeah, that's really a good point. A lot of your series involves, obviously, making food, eating food. And the most common setting is a group of people around a special, often evocative and even symbolic meal. A lot of talk what the food means. But so it really captures my, when you do something that's a little more lyrical or symbolic or imaginary. One sequence here, after this meal, you give us a shot of Mr. Gaines strolling down the corridor of the train away from us. With the superimposition, which, as you just noted, that he became an ancestor, he passed away in April this year. Uh, You then give us a matching shot of Stephen making his way down a literal train track. Again, from behind, we see him moving down the track. He's moving more quickly than Mr. Gaines, but, but you slow down the film a bit, so it almost matches in speed. There's such a parallel story there in so many ways. And I think Stephen really sharing with them his own personal history. I know we talk about it a lot, but it is again, like a passing of the baton of, you know, one person leaving and Stephen moving forward and continuing to tell these stories and share these stories with people in a visual way. And also just like the poignancy of it, of getting to meet these gentlemen and hearing about their contribution to civil rights and what they were fighting for and change. I guess it's always like we're always moving in one direction or the other. The episode fittingly ends in Chicago, end of the line. You have a nice meal, which finishes with a, it's a shoebox meal, a pound cake. Can you explain the significance of this dessert? When there was this train travel, there was no food for the people traveling in these lower class cab cars. Like the grandparents would pack a meal, they would decorate the boxes, they would put, you know flowers, pick whatever they, symbolic things, and then put foods that were staple that would keep well, like fried chicken or a sweet, of course. 
we really tried to find an actual shoebox, but because it was like mm, yeah. brown paper bag, there's no evidence of like the actual shoeboxes, which was kind of sad. But yeah, it is a beautiful thing. It's like the last thing that you could take because I'm sure people weren't able to take photographs and a lot, but they were able to take like something that grandmother or mother made to send you on your way that could sustain you and had pieces of home and remembrance in them. In episode two, we arrive in New York and we learn about the Harlem Renaissance. And you do have this amazing tale of Alexander Smalls. You had promised the episode would explore the connections between music and food. And in his life, in his career, we have this amazing combination of moving from a career at opera to becoming a chef and food entrepreneur. Can you just tell that story a little bit? Alexander is such a fabulous human being and for Stephen to get to go into his home and hear his story of being an opera singer and then basically reaching a glass ceiling and deciding that it would be better for him to move into a world that he could control more by owning restaurants and cooking food and having like the most fabulous people come to his restaurants, which completely changed his trajectory. You can tell he had such a passion for music and still does. There is some sadness in not being able to pursue that. But then he beautifully shifts into the world of restaurants and glamour. And he's so incredible. And the meal he cooks for Stephen is so beautiful and heartfelt. And he really continued to have salons. You know, he's very famous for having incredible people come to his house and he cooks for them, which I think is a highlight. If you could get an invitation to that would be the greatest invitation ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his Instagram of who comes and has dinner at his place is like, it's just like, who's who? You know, it's just unbelievable. Rivaling Madam C.J. Walker's list of luminaries. This episode really does focus, I think, more so even on ownership, on capital. One of your subjects suggests that recipes are a currency, and it almost seems like she means both, that in terms of a form of communication, also its form of creation of property in some sense. Can you explain further what was intended there? I think you're referring to like Joy Bivens. The episode really hits on entrepreneurship and resourcefulness within the Black community. Like Pigfoot Mary, she became a millionaire just like making stewed pig feet and selling them on the streets of Harlem. And that sort of legacy of entrepreneurship around food is really heavy and highlighting that. The episode, and his name escapes me, guy selling watermelons. Oh, Tyrell Dixon. He, you know, alludes that he had a life of crime, but now he's like doing these varieties, like all these different varieties of like heirloom watermelons and then importing them from the South and getting in touch with that. And just like he says, I wish I'd known about this sooner because this is like an honest way to make a living. I mean, it's just highlighting how we've made our way within a closed system of entrepreneurship. Similarly with Chef Kui and Charles Pan, with where they're making the fried chicken he came up for himself, he's using the same pans. It's kind of a, a legacy that we're seeing continues on from Alelia and Pigfoot Mary to present day. When I see someone selling fruit on a corner, it doesn't dawn on me that this person in this case is deeply embedded with the farmers. He's thinking about varietals. Yeah. I mean, it's not just selling fruit in the corner for him. It's a, it's a cultural experience. It's a cultural expression. Yeah. And I think his love for it really came across. It's a passion. It's not just selling fruit. Do you know what I mean? It, it's so deep, his connection and what he's looking to share with the community. 
Yeah, and I just want to call out that these final three episodes are directed by Eric Parker, very ably directed by Eric Parker. In your third episode called The Defiance, we're looking at civil rights. And here we have another kind of focus on creation of capital, not just for personal enrichment, no problem with that here, but for supporting civil rights. Can you tell me the story of Georgia Gilmore in this case? Georgia Gilmore, we were super excited to cover because we've all heard about the Montgomery bus boycott. But before we delved into this, we had never heard of Georgia Gilmore and how integral she was as part of the funding because kind of like, okay, people stop taking the bus, but how did they get to work? How did that happen? And through the, her network, they raised money through selling of sandwiches and slab pie and such. We're able to raise money to pay for gas, pay for insurance, getting people to work because people still had to get to work and how integral that she was in creating this network. She started the club like the club from nowhere. She couldn't get busted. You know, it's like, where is this from? The club from nowhere. Oh, where is it? Nowhere. I mean, I just love the wordplay and sort of like the sass this woman had and how important it was. That strike went on for a really long time, 322 days. That also really shows the interconnectedness of like financial support for, well, you're going to continue to work and we're going to help network that. And I know that we've had our own strikes, you know, in the industry. And maybe something like that could have been helpful to a lot of people. I think it's also the story about her is really about underestimating the power of organization that sometimes we're like, oh, she was just making pies. No, she wasn't just making pies. She was like fueling a movement, funding a movement. It was super organized. And I think that that's like the hidden history that we really want to highlight is it isn't just about a pie. It's about the importance of the financial wealth that can bring to fuel a movement. Speaking of hidden history, you tell the story of young student activists who integrated the Magnolia Room at Richard's Department Store in downtown Atlanta. Uh, fascinating story. I lived in Atlanta for a while and I heard of the larger you know, civil rights movement there. And certainly I heard of the integration of the lunch counters in North Carolina, but I had not heard of this story, which is really amazing. And by the way, I, I thought I was going to get through this season of High on the Hog without crying. Uh, <laughs> but seeing these young, brave people, and then you turn- Georgie you and close, Thomas got you, didn't she? <laughs> and then Stephen wipes away a tear and that was over. Uh, you got me. Because they're just, when they do this, they're just about my own kid's age. And I can't- I know. That. And what's amazing to me is, as I'm sure it's terrifying as these racists who in one case even burn them with a cigarette. It's terrifying as those people are. What they're in some ways even more afraid of, amazingly, and I'm not downplaying the actual physical danger they were in, but what they were more afraid of was their parents, and especially how their mothers are going to react. It's really a reminder here of something we don't think about, which is their bravery wasn't just in the face of this incredible physical and legal danger. It was emotional. It was deeply emotional. They had to show their parents that this was a way to progress too. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality of them going to jail was severe. It's like now we think of it in such a different way. But back then, obviously, that could be life-changing. It could change the whole trajectory of your life as a college student. It's not detention, but you speak to their bravery. This was like life or death for these people, do you know? Just standing up at 17. I mean, I didn't do anything like that. My kids certainly are not activists in that way, but this was so important. And I think highlighting 
their bravery is just is so it's inspiring to be honest I love that scene so much because the interplay between them is so beautiful like remembering the songs that they were singing on the day just how attached still they are to their college time it's it's very palpable I love when what I'm learning from documentaries builds on itself when I recently spoke with Alan Hughes about his documentary Dear Mama which is about Tupac Shakur and his mother Fanny We've talked about how we really were both misled throughout high school, college, about the focus of the Black Panthers. And we had believed that they were just a militant organization with a lot of guns. That's That was our vision. And Fanny Shakur was deeply involved in the Panthers' efforts in New York City to bring better medical and health access to the people that she was serving. And we learned that some of these efforts actually resulted in changes to local policies around like a patient's bill of rights. There was actually change affected over time by the Black Panthers in New York. You tell a similar story about the free breakfast program in LA, the Panthers had. Can you tell a little bit about that story? Similarly, we had that experience regarding the narrative, what the Black Panthers, and there is an amazing documentary about, I think it's called Vanguards of the Revolution. Right, directed by Stanley Nelson, who's been on the show to talk about his documentary Attica. The free breakfast program was just like started in Oakland to give kids common sense, eat your breakfast. You are more attentive during the day. It started there, but that free breakfast program morphed into the free breakfast program that we have today. It's so powerful. It's a small thing, but it's not a small thing because it's like, it's nourishment. I think that they also did the voter registration. It's register to vote, get a bag of groceries. I mean, it's meeting people where they're at and I think that's what's so powerful about it is we're looking at it through food. You know, you take care of people's basic needs. They will thrive and move forward. It's a legacy that I think that we all should always remember that the Black Panther were a huge part, an integral part of creating that. I'm not going to make you <laughs> repeat the whole history of Nation of Islam and being pies. I never fully understand that. You explain it very well. Watch the documentary, folks. It's very well explained. It's very interesting. I am really intrigued by the connection that's made here. I think Stephen makes it between these kind of informal networks and sort of informal imprimatur, where either your place of worship or your place of self-care, someone gets approval to sell the bean pie or sell something at the barbershop, outside the church, outside the mosque. Can you talk about the importance of that in Black culture? I think it's supporting your community. Cheryl Day talks about the connection to Georgia Gilmore, but then also about how important it was for her and her own practice of her work is that she would go to the barbershops and give her stuff. It's like the interconnectedness of community is so important because people are supporting you and you're supporting people by providing. And I think that all the entrepreneurs, you need your community to stand up. You know, it's like you need their support and they need you to be creative and be your best self. Speaking of sort of non-institutional accreditation or permission, I want to talk a bit about Devon Francis and Yardy World. We see Devon, he is bringing culinary delights to social media, right? What's interesting, because I've heard a lot of complaints from quote-unquote foodies about how there's so much focus now because of Instagram on color, placement, visual textures of food to say nothing of the way restaurants are now lit to optimize your iPhone camera. <laughs> I thought I'm over late today. But Stephen definitely puts a different spin on this, I think. You know, he says, it's a sensory delight. Even before we taste the food, my senses are engaged. 
I'm lucky enough to know a lot of people in the food world and yeah, going to a restaurant with them, I initially was like, just filled with like, oh my God, I can't believe you're taking your camera out and like lighting it and doing this. But I think it's like, we eat with our eyes, you know? And I think if you look at just like the evolution of food in general, it's like, we start like old magazines of like jello molds, you know, it's like really sort of monochromatic we take it in. And I mean, one, Devon Francis is probably one of the nicest people in the world and makes the most delicious food. So we start with our eyes and we eat with our mouth. Again, it's like exposure. There's a lot of food publications and magazines, newspapers for so long focused primarily on the white male chef. You know, how else are you going to like, you got to like co-opt some opportunity and find your audience and find your people. And Instagram is one of those things. Also, the counter is like Devon is filled with so much love and joy. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that is really important for Fabienne and I for this show is that's what we want to highlight. And he is a counter to a lot of the other stuff that we see out there the absolute love and joy he has like for preparing that meal and, you know, giving the history and his food is just beautiful and filled with love and passion. That's what I love about him. But also in that episode and what they really highlight is we're going to celebrate it. KJ says, I'm going to support, this is what we're going to do. And it's, again, it's about exposure, finding outlets that may not, you know, Devon, yes, does a lot of work with Yardy World and Buen Appetit. But it's like KJ's also publicizing people who don't have that sort of exposure and giving, you know, a platform. At the end of a lot of culinary shows, and this is a culinary show for sure. It's also, I think, a show so full of ideas. Uh, it's it's uh, breathtaking, really. In the final sequence, we often expect that we're going to have a big party. It's going to be a big gathering. You know, Stanley Tucci is going to cook us up a big pasta meal. And we do have a final kind of celebratory meal. But it's also, to me... Also loaded with like some dark reminders. We have this collective ghetto gastro, and yes, they are reclaiming the name ghetto consciously here, who have prepared dishes like maroon shrooms and American apple pie, where America spelled the ice cube style with three K's as a reminder of you know white supremacy, or as one of the collective says, black bodies of the killing of black Americans. It's a really interesting balance that you have at the end of this episode or the season, really, of celebration, but also a reminder of these kind of darker strains in American culture. I think the most important thing that we wanted to convey was like what Ghetto Gastro is doing with their food and like really deep dive into some hard topics, but also the joy of breaking bread and sharing a meal. And, and I think that was the importance of them sitting down together is telling history, sharing truths and community. I think also the importance of intergenerational, I mean, I think Dr. J says it about the importance of sitting down with your grandparents or your parents, because the conversation needs to keep going back between generations. I think that's what makes that last scene so special is them all sharing their stories and like going to Africa and how all of those things have impacted them, but how we also use it to look forward in a positive way. And teach and educate. And also the integration of those, is the symbolism is really prevalent. It's like, yes, American apple pie, but yeah, there's this other side to it. So we're not going to pretend that it's all apple pie and peaches. 
there is the dark underbelly. And it's like, it's important to continue to, as Kara said, have that conversation. I think you do a great job of it. I do want to say, I thought the series was truly intriguing, as I said, just full of ideas that engaged me and, and very challenging to me. Uh, I'll be honest, you know, really made me re-see and rethink a lot of what I see around me. And so thank you. A profound, truly profound series. Beautifully shot, beautifully, I mean, it works as a food show for sure. It also works on a much deeper level as well. And that was always the intention. The intention was always like food in some ways makes these hard conversations and realities more palatable. It's like, if we can delight a part of you, you'll be open to hear something else. I'm a big food lover and learn a lot through food. We love telling stories that haven't been told before. So if, if it makes you go and learn more about Lena Richards or Georgia Gilmore or other people that we think have played such an important role in our history, it gives you a tiny bit, but then hopefully you take that away and go dig deeper. Do you have any suggestion for those of us who would like to, even in a small way, get on the better side of what Karen Washington calls food apartheid? Are there any steps that you think listeners of this podcast could take? continually just support Black restaurants, Black businesses. I think that's the best thing, you know, Black products. There's all kinds of chefs that are doing products. Certainly like Karen Washington, like following Karen Washington and seeing what she's doing. There's certainly similar people doing that in Los Angeles and all over the country following Black farmers. But she's obviously a great place to start and she's such a kind of powerhouse. Or buying their cookbooks and buying Karen Washington's vegetables. I think she's at the Union Square Farmer's Market in the city. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you don't think it's the attention it deserves? I really love Mistaken for Strangers, just because it's so weird and odd and it's a music documentary, but at its core, it's really about this relationship with two brothers. It's really touching in a really sort of lovely way. And to be honest with you, I wasn't a huge fan of The National before I saw the documentary. But just the way it was constructed and kind of you're like, is this a mockumentary because it's so off the wall? But you're thoroughly entertained and you really get drawn in and you really see the empathy that this kind of rock star has for his brother. I just went to the AFI screening of Vim Vendors Anselm, which is amazing and beautiful. But then I was thinking back to My Best Fiend, which is one of like my favorite, I think in a similar way, to what Fabienne was saying is like touching story of just love-hate relationship, which is so poignant and exposing for both the director and the protagonist. I love that it's like funny and sad. I feel like that's one that people don't talk about as much and everyone should see. It.